This week, uh, some of you may not know, some of you do, we saw the passing of one of the greatest evangelical leaders of the 20th century. In 1921, little did the world know, God knew, but the world did not know yet, that a little boy born that in England, in London, less than eight blocks from his church, where he would live his entire life and serve in one church his entire life, was born. He lived there his whole life, born in a secularist home, with a Lutheran mother who took him to All Souls Church because it was closest to where he lived. John R.W. Stott lived 90 years. He refused to abandon his church, the Anglican church. Though she, in his view, was strayed in many ways, he pushed for reform from the inside out. What was his reward? We don't know all of them, but we know this. Under his leadership as the assistant pastor from 1945 to 1950, and then as pastor, teaching pastor, from 1950 until 1975, and then as pastor emeritus, preaching often but traveling more often, he shepherded the souls not only in London, but also around the world. Billy Graham said... John Stott is the greatest evangelical Christian of our time. Uncle John, as he was affectionately known, committed himself to celibacy, lived his life for the kingdom of God, and he went and was gathered to his fathers this week. And he now experiences the wealth of worship surrounding the throne of the king that he was so pleased to serve. And it's right for us to honor his life. As I thought about the best way to do it, I changed on my uh, sermon, not for this week, but for October the 31st, thereabouts. The Reformation celebration this year was intended to center around the life of John Calvin. We just switched John's. We'll now honor the life and ministry of John R.W. Stott. I did not agree with him on all things, but on the essentials, there was no one better. I commend, you, commend to you his life, and I thank God for his ministry. Ephesians chapter 4. This is what he did so well. He preached the word of God in season, out of season. Expositor par excellence. So we'll see what we can do. You're stuck with a country kid from Mississippi. God's character applied to the church. Ephesians 4, verses 3 through 6. Kind of mid-sentence here, but we're in mid-thought. If you haven't been with us, just try to catch on here. Eager, the Word says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let's pray. Father, as we move into this time of study, as we think about Your Word, as we reflect over our own lives as they stand here before us, your words and our lives. And we see that we fail. We fail as individuals. We fail as a church. We fail as a universal community of your body so often. And yet your word never fails. And so we're encouraged this morning as we come to your word and see your mind and your heart displayed here for us in black and white. And we just, God, thank you for not leaving us as sheep without a shepherd. We thank you that you have, with your, the rod and staff of your word, you have comforted us, and you have corrected us, and you have guided us, and you will continue to do so. We ask God that your spirit might now rest on us in a unique way. 
We know He's with us, for You've promised this, but we ask in a unique way now, God, that You would open our eyes to see wondrous things from Your Word. That our hearts would be burning and yearning to live out what we see so that the world might praise the glory of Your great name. It's in Your great name we pray, Christ. Amen. The church universal appears to be very fractured. I don't pretend by sticking my head in the sand that's not the case. If you look around at the church, you'll see many denominations. Many different ideas about what the Scripture says or what it doesn't say. Many applications of what we believe it says. Even among those who agree on what it says, often the applications are not identical. So we have a denominational disunity, it seems, on the surface. And I'm not denying that. Listen, the church after the first century, after the apostles' death, remained unchanged. And in that, I mean this. It had been firmly established on the life and ministry and word of God through Jesus Christ and His apostles and prophets. But... Even in the early days, it was harassed by those who would come in and deceive. It was often challenged by those who would seek to, maybe not deceive, but just splinter and move about and change. This wasn't anything new, in other words. As we move through the middle centuries, the middle ages, often called the dark ages, we know the church at large, universal, strayed far, far from the truth. And our forebears, the reformers, in the early uh, part of the 16th century, sought to have a course correction, pull the church back to the foundations, the moorings of Scripture, and the Scripture applied in real life. Men that we respect became heretics. Because they challenged the church. And the church moved in two directions. Through various councils, the church, which had been universal, hardened its position. And became combative against those who would seek to change her. And those who sought to change her became hardened around what they saw to be the basics of Christianity. And the foundations of God's Word. And so we had the great split. The great schism, the great severing, which occurred under the Protestant Reformation. Those are our forebears. We are not Roman Catholic. We are Protestant. We protested. The church did not hear our protest, so our forefathers moved to establish a more pure church. And then from there, we've had many schisms, splits, breaks. It has not been... A monolithic movement, ours hasn't. The Protestant church is more splintered today than it ever has been because now we've, beside the labels of the denominations, we've now put one great catch-all, non-denominational, which just means many times what we believe. You know, as just an individual church, no one else necessarily agrees with anything we say. And we don't agree with anybody else. That's often what's happening in our world. The church looks very splintered, very fragmented, very broken. And yet I bring to you a passage from the pen of the inspired apostle through the work of the Holy Spirit that says there is unity in the church. How can this be? How can it be that it looks so fractured and yet there is great unity? Well, maybe by the end we will be able to see better what's being said here and what's not being said. We must remember the distinctions, which we hopefully learned years ago, but maybe you haven't. I'll tell you, the distinction is this. Remember this, keep this in mind today as we go through the passage. There is a visible church and an invisible church. A visible church which displays itself in local congregations gathered together for worship and ministry all over the world, visibly. You can see it. It's happening, okay? 
But inside and outside of those churches, there is what's known as the invisible or universal church, the church of all time. This church stretches from Adam till today. Some of them have gone before us. They've been gathered into the great cloud of witnesses, which watch over the faith, in a sense, from heaven. And then there are the invisible church in the sense of those living. Inside this congregation, there are believers. We're not ignorant. There also are unbelievers. We can't see them. We can't distinguish so easily about their lives. So they're gathered here with us. They might look externally a lot like us, but yet if we could see the heart, we would see they are not one that belongs to Christ. But we can't see that. So therefore, we had the visible and invisible church. And my, my statement to you, and I believe it's the statement of this passage, is that there is great unity in this invisible body which we cannot see with our human eyes, but which we know exists by the grace of God. There's great unity, not disunity. And maybe it would be helpful if we would focus on verses like we have before us today. I think it would. The first thing I'd like us to see in this passage is that we believe, we believe, and you'll notice both, all three points are we believe points. Because I think what we have before us though it was not a confession in Paul's day, became quickly a confession of faith. I don't think Paul's stealing from a first century confession when he writes here. I think these are Paul's words. But the way he constructed it, especially in verses uh, 4 through 6, seems to break out like a confession of faith. Almost. There's an exception, but almost. You notice he doesn't put any connecting words when we get there. You'll notice it. It'll just jump off the page. He just runs them one right after another. These confessions, these doctrinal statements. He gives no great explanation except in one case. He gives no explanation. He just states them. This is truth. So I stated these points in we believe points, confessional points. We believe in one triune God. We believe in one triune God. Paul gives us three verses And he emphasizes in those three verses all three persons of the Trinity. If you look at verse 4, you see here, there is one body and one spirit, first person of the Trinity mentioned. Verse 5, one Lord. Verse 6, one God and Father of all. So in three succinct verses, Paul covers the fact that we serve one God who is triune. There are three in one. The great doctrine of the Trinity is presented here for acceptance. Paul's statement is based on an Old Testament truth. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. And it is based on the understanding, even the Old Testament understanding, which is fully revealed in the New Testament writers, that that one God exists in three persons. One in essence, three in persons, and responsibilities. We are, we are often guilty, myself included, of segmenting the Godhead. So as to say, God the Father only does this, and God the Son only does this, and God the Spirit only does that. That would be three gods. That's easy to slip there, isn't it? We also seem to be quick, and maybe not so much in our fellowship, But in a lot of fellowships, we're quick to just say, there's just one God. There's not three persons. But we should run away from both of these errors. We should believe in what the Bible teaches, which is, we have one God displayed to us clearly, distinctively, yet in essence the same three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in Paul's writing here, in Ephesians 4, verse 4, it starts with Spirit then goes in verse 5 to Lord, and then to God and Father of us all. So, um, not being one who is very ingenious, there is one Spirit. The Spirit here is capitalized. Do you notice that in your English text? The reason it's capitalized is those who translated your word for you understand that the original intent of the writer was not to emphasize man's spirit, man's personalities or man's spirit, man's emotions or man's 
man's existence, but rather he's, exper- he's expressing a, the, the sovereign spirit, the Holy Spirit here. That's so important because we're going to see that in this unity there are many, many diverse people involved in the unity okay, of the church. Of the one body, there's many people with many personalities, many, we might say, spirits inside the human, but there's only one Holy Spirit. And it is through this Holy Spirit that we are united into an organic, living, breathing body. It's through this Spirit, which you have if you were in Christ, and I have. Which, by the way, the Presbyterians, Methodists, Anglicans, and so on, have, if they are truly in Christ, they have this Spirit. So, it brings the great unity of the body. So, Paul says here, first of all, in verse 4, that we, that we should focus on and understand there is a, the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he says, there is one Lord. One Lord. <clears throat> There's not two heads to this body. There's only one. There are not two masters. There's only one. We are implored in the Scripture that we can only worship one God. That comes from the Decalogue, the very Ten Commandments which God gave to His people, gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall worship no God beside me. You shall not make a graven image of any God. You shall not take the God's name in vain. These statements tell us very clearly that we have one God. And we have the one Lord statement here in Ephesians 4. Jesus, in His ministry, expressed Himself to be one who came from the Father and is going to return to the Father. And He is here not to do His will, but the will of His Father. So we see this unity inside the Godhead. The Spirit, the one Spirit of God issued from the Father and Son to us, now possessing us so that we might worship and love and serve and believe in and commit to and follow one Lord, not two. The church has one head. The church has one Lord. And Paul is quick to tell us this in verse 5. But he also goes on to say there is one God and Father of us all. This This statement is the most general statement used in the New Testament to express God. God or God the Father. The most broad label. Yet it is a distinct person inside of this unity. And look how he breaks out for us some very important facts here about this God and Father of us all. Look what he says. First of all, he tells us that this God is supreme. If you look at verse 4, there is one God, and, I mean, excuse me, verse 6, there is one God and Father of us all, or of all. That is a statement, I believe, of supreme God. You say, well, no, the Buddhists worship one God, and the Muslims worship a God, and the Mormons worship a God, or understanding of God, and the Baptists worship the same God as we do. There's cults, and there's denominations, and there's all these these things, there's other world religions. But there's only one God. He is supreme. It's not a statement that all men worship the one God, but rather that there is one God. One supreme God who created all of mankind. Though all man does not submit to His leadership or His godness, yet He is still their God. You feel this when you travel the globe, when you go to other locations, places that are not so Judeo-Christian in their ethic. You feel it. It's palpable. That even though you're in a place that is dark, lost, and has over the centuries rejected the gospel literally millions of times, yet you still know God is there. God is still sovereign over that place. He is still supreme in that place. I felt this when my family, my wife and I, traveled to China and went into a Buddhist temple. And we watched as our God and hundreds of others bowed and worshipped this statue of wood. And yet, in my heart, I knew, though they worshipped a false god, there was only one God 
ruling over this existence. His name is Jehovah. Yahweh. The covenant God who is over all of heaven and earth. So we see first that God is, the Father is supreme. We see second that God is sovereign. If you look, He is the God and Father of all. <clears throat> who is over all. This is a statement, I believe, of sovereignty. Now you may be sitting here and you may not be in submission to His sovereignty. I've been there. I understand where you're at. But I'll tell you, He is still sovereign. He still is Lord over your life. And so, He is sovereign not only at Grace Fellowship, but He is sovereign at all times, in all places, over all people. So He's supreme, and He is sovereign. He is the God and Father of all, and He is over all. And now, we see that He is all-powerful. And He is through all. His power, His power is undeniable. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that His full power is displayed, or His power is displayed in the creation. And yet they deny His existence and worship idols made in their image and the image of creeping things. But the short hand is not in God's court, it's in our court as humanity. God's power is evident. It is painted like on a tapestry known as creation. It is written about in His Word. We see it clearly surrounding us everywhere. He is all-powerful and He is all-present in all. This is not a statement of pantheism. Paul's not saying there's a little bit of God in everybody and everybody's a little bit God. No. He's saying His presence is with you. God the Father of us all, who is over all, through all, and in all. He's supreme. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. And He's with you everywhere. David would say it like this. If I were to take up wings and soar with the eagles, you would be there. And if I were to go down into the uttermost depths of the earth, you would be there. For you knew me when you formed me in the inward parts, in the inner womb of my mother. You knew me there. At your conception, God was there. At your birth, God was there. In your life, God is there. In your death, God is there. The great reality of the world is God is. God is there. Men may deny His existence. This doesn't change it. God is supreme. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God is all-present. In every situation of your life, God is present. And so, I would say, we believe in one triune God, but my question my question, and maybe a challenge to you, is do we live as if we serve one triune God? This is where it gets uncomfortable. Everybody was amening, nodding ahead, and then the application, and it's like, hey, keep the theology out here, don't let it touch me. But that's not how theology works. It always touches us. What news have you received this week? that did not come from the hand of the Father. What news have you received? What event has happened? Who has abandoned or left you? Who has died among you? And what God isn't present with you right now? And let's just confess, when things seem uncertain, and the storm clouds of life gather around us, we forget we have a triune God. We, we lose faith in Him. And my encouragement to you, Paul's encouragement would be, confess that there is one true God and live out the, that reality in every part of your life. You're not the part of some cosmic chance. You're the part of a plan which has existed before the foundation of the world. Whatever step you took this week in that plan, 
whether you thought it was good or evil, is under His control. And He is supreme over it. And He is supplying the power through His Spirit that has been given to you through His Son, Jesus Christ, that you might live in the moment and glorify Him by your life. Okay? Church, we believe. Do we believe? Do we live this way that we have one God and He is triune? We move on to the second part here because in the text... We see something very, it took me a while to see it. It took me, took me at least all week <laughs> to see this. I wanted, I was tempted to look at these things as seven statements, right? Now, you know I'm not one of these numerologists, okay? Biblical numerologists. I, I kind of get leery and scared of that. But the Hebrew people did respect numbers and their meanings, so when Paul wanted to tell us what is the essence of our existence, what is the meaning behind our unity, it's no coincidence, I don't think, that he did it in seven statements. Why? Because in the Hebrew mind, seven being the number of perfection. We have a perfect unity centered around perfect truth that is unassailed and unchanged from the beginning of time. Seven realities here. But they break down that. I saw that pretty quick, okay? Even as dense as I am. But then, as I kept hammering on the text, what seemed to fall out clearly was there were two sections inside this seven statements. Two sections. The first was the triune God. And the second was the realities of the Christian life based on the character of that triune God. Spirit, Lord, and Father lead us to <clears throat> the other four, which are realities, which are truths. And we see it, one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism. So we have three in one unity. The triunity, the triune God, I think Dave talked with you about. That is the, that is the basis of the plea for unity for Paul. The Godhead is unified you are unified, now live unified. That's the way Paul talks in the first three verses. And so that we don't miss it, because we are so dense, he says, I'll give you seven realities, broken down in two parts. God the Spirit, God the Son, God the Father, which bring about four real events and truths. One body, one hope, one faith, one baptism. And so we see them here. Now, we believe in a triune God, and we are living out unity through these four realities. Paul gives four expressions of unity in this text. There is one body. That's the first thing we see here. You say, what body is he talking about? What body is he trying to explain to us? Well, it is the church. He's talked about it in chapter 3. He's talked about it in chapter 2. He's been very clear that this church contains one group of people, neither Jew nor Gentile, but Christian. Of Jews and Gentiles, there are Christians, and they are one body. And I would submit to you, it didn't start in A.D. 33. I always chuckle at those church signs. You might know the ones I'm talking about. It'll have the name of the church and then at the bottom, founded in A.D. 33. Well, that just dismisses the greatest part of our history. The people of God of the Old Covenant. Just completely dismisses them. As if their lives are cut from us. As if there's an Old Covenant section of heaven and a New Covenant section of heaven. No. There's one section of heaven. It belongs to the body of Christ. It stretches from Adam to whenever Christ comes again. It was founded on the eternal counsel of God. And there's been a godly line of God's people that has stretched from Adam to Abel to Seth to Noah to Noah's son 
and down from him to Abraham, and from Abraham, both the physical and spiritual descendants of Abraham by promise. That's the church, folks. One body. One body. Paul is fond of speaking with this terminology. I've put the Scripture on the screen. 1 Corinthians 12. Look what it says. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Look what he says. For in one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. The broadest of categories in Paul's day have been covered now. And there's one body containing all of these broad categories, Jew, Greek, slave, and free. And all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. He then goes in talking about each part of the body, saying to the other, you're not necessary or you're not needed. But then he comes back to say, no, all of the people, all of the uh, parts of the body are needed. Look how he ends. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually you're members of it. And God is appointed in the church first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? The answer to that would be no. No, on every case. You don't do all those things. That's why God's given you parts inside the one body. So the body is healthy when its parts live out their unity through, as we'll see next week and the weeks to come, diversity of gifting and calling. But it is still, nonetheless, one body. An organic body. Romans 12 Paul again, verses 4-9 through says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. What does he say? For as in the body, in one body, we may have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts, and then he goes through talking about the gifts again. And so Paul is maintaining his teaching, both in Ephesians 4, verse 4, when he says, one body. We're to think of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. He's not, he's not changed his point. He is on point. We have one body. We have one hope. Verse 4 says, we have this one hope. And what is the hope? Simply put, glory. That's the hope. Is that your hope? Glory? Psalm 8 says God created Adam and crowned him with glory and put him a little lower than the angels and gave him rule and dominion over all the earth and then he fell. He failed. He failed. He lost his glory. His glory was twisted. The image of God which God had crowned him with was seemingly gone. It was hidden. It's still there. But it's hidden. And in Hebrews 2, Jesus came in being the second Adam in the form of Adam. He came crowned with glory and He never failed. And so He is the hope of glory for us. Adam had glory. He lost it. How does He get it back? Jesus. If you're in the one body, your hope is one. And it is glory. It is glory. It's not this life. Forget the charlatans of our age that want to convince you that this is it. Forget that. Whether they be in the church or out of the church, it's a worldly philosophy. This isn't it. The, the it is the hope of glory. Colossians is clear in this point. Colossians 1.27 says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is the hope of the, what is the glory of the mystery? Which is Christ in you, what? The hope of glory. Our hope is the glory which we will receive in Christ. It's not a multi-glory, it's one. 
Romans 8, 18-25, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What keeps you in the time of trial and struggle? The hope of glory. What keeps you at the point of a bayonet or gun barrel when you're being questioned about your faith? The hope of glory. What keeps you when you, like Charles Simeon, climb into a pulpit to face a congregation that hates your guts every Sunday? He did it for 50 years. He got up to preach with locked pews. Everybody stood along the sides because nobody would let him in the pews. In, in, to abstain his doctrine. They hated him. And yet he crawled up in that pulpit with the, with the courage of Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Because he had the hope that this wasn't the best life we would ever have. But rather, there was a better one coming. It was the glory of Christ being revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth and it'll now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I would say that all of you experience this, hopefully weekly, daily, as you see your sin, as you see the corruption of the world and the fallenness that surrounds you. You cry out, not even words you can even say. Your inward parts just yearn and groan for what is coming. That's the hope of glory. Every Christian should have it. If you are settled with this life, you must not know Christ. If you're satisfied with your progress, you don't know Jesus. If you think you've reached the pinnacle, you don't have real faith. Because it's in this hope that we are saved, he says. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I skip down to give you, what are we waiting for, Paul? And we know that, the, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's not some magical incantation to be spoken over you getting fired at your job or your divorce or the death of your child. That's not what that verse is. That verse is the answer to the hope of glory. That verse is saying we may never know what God's doing in this life. We may never understand it. It may never look good here, but it is good because He has purpose. And what is His purpose? He quickly answers it. For those whom He foreknew, excuse me, and we know this, that all things work together, called according to His purpose. What is His purpose? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the hope of glory. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. It's an unbroken movement and plan and purpose of God unveiling His glory across all of the earth through the salvation of sinners like you and me. That's our hope. But is it your hope? Is it? Or is your hope in something far less? Don't be surprised if your hope is in far less when you hit the hard times and your faith hits the skids. The only hope we have is the hope that Christ will fulfill His Word to us in the hope of glory. There is one faith, Paul says, this is not talking about something you did or I did, something that we do, but rather it is a body of faith, a body of facts, a body of doctrine. A body of doctrine. Galatians 1, 6-9 says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said, 
before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. There is a body of faith, of doctrine, delivered to us by the apostles through the Holy Spirit, and it is one faith, not many. Jude chapter 3, the brother of the Lord writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, contending with you, and calling you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In our day, as some, some would say, we need novel approaches. We need new teachings. No. No. We need the same teaching. We need to better understand the same teaching that was delivered to us by the apostles. It was given to us through this one Spirit. He then says there is one baptism. I know. Many of you turned your mind immediately to water baptism. But that's secondary in this passage at best. What is he saying? We're all baptized in the Christ through the Spirit. John said, I baptize you with water, but He will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. He will baptize you from on high. And it happened in Acts. The Spirit fell on those who were gathered at Pentecost. And He has continued to fall on those who believe in Christ. Galatians 3, Paul describes this baptism. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... See the metaphor of baptism like that of getting dressed? That doesn't have anything to do with water. That has to do with the Spirit. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs of the promise. Colossians 2, 11-12 says, In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Paul saying, Whether you received your baptism as a child or as a believer, if you were baptized into Christ, by the Spirit, you have received the one baptism. So quickly, we like to go to texts like this and teach our own teachings, our own doctrines. But he's speaking here about the Spirit. And then we see finally, in this text, in chapter 4, verse 3, that we have unity through the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul's not encouraging us to establish unity. Notice he doesn't say, work hard to gain unity. No. He's saying, unity exists in the Spirit. You have unity in the Spirit. <laughs> Paul makes it clear that this unity has to be maintained, though. And it's maintained through the bond of peace. Christ is our peace. Through His Spirit, we have a bond which can never be broken. We are at peace with one another because we are at peace with God. The world goes about it all wrong. Many churches go about it all wrong. They seek peace. They think peace will bring unity. No. We have unity in the Spirit which brings us peace with God and one another. Not the other way around. You can never have peace with God until you're in unity with His Spirit. Works-based salvation doesn't work. How then does this apply to us here at Grace Fellowship? How does this challenge us here at Grace Fellowship? Well, we face a great challenge here. The church has grown. God has added many members from the first little group that met in a living room of a home. And we must work to maintain the unity we have. We must. We must be eager to it. Not allowing ourselves to fragment 
bust up, separate over lesser matters, but rather grabbing hold to Christ and holding on to that common faith and doctrine. We must stay unified, painting a picture to the world of God's work of salvation. A parable. Visible churches like the visible marriage is a parable. You say, what are you talking about? Stealing a little bit from Ephesians 5, did you know your marriage is a parable? It is a picture of the relationship Christ has with the church. Don't ever get it backwards. Some wrongly do. They think that Christ and the church are the parable by which I understand my marriage. No. No. Christ and the church are exemplified by our marriage to our wife, men. And so like unity occurs there, so unity occurs in a church. The church is also a picture to the world. When God's people gather willingly together to worship, people see this body, though it may be diverse, coming together and worshiping and loving one another. Worshiping God and loving one another. And by this the world knows you are my disciples because you love one another. So like your, your marriage individually paints the picture of how Christ loves His church, so when you bring your family into this church, you're now, all of us together are painting a picture to the world of Christ's love for His church. So when you abandon your wife, men, or when you leave your husband, women, you're painting a bad picture of Christ in the church. In our day, it's become easier and easier to abandon the marriage bond and covenant. It shouldn't be so among us. We should eagerly maintain the unity we have in the Spirit in our marriages. Christian, two Christians should never come to divorce. Not because they're good people, but because they serve a good God who preaches a true gospel and has given us His Son. Now we should stay married. You say, well, right now we don't love each other. That's fine. It doesn't matter. Love does this number. The covenant does this. So men, I encourage you, if you don't love your wife right now, get on your face before God and beg and plead Him that you would love her again. But do not divorce her. Stay with her. Say, well, all we're doing if we do that is just staying together just for the sake of staying together. Yes! Amen! Well, I don't think that's a very good picture. It's not up to you to decide what a good picture is. God has decided. So stay married to her. And pray God give you love and passion for her again. You'd be surprised what He will do. You talk to men have been married for 50, 60 years, I tell you the same thing. Love comes and goes. One day I want to kill her. The next day I want to, you know, be joined as man and wife with her. Maybe one minute to the next. <laughs> Why? Because there's a covenant there. There's a covenant there. You should literally think about killing your spouse and never think about divorcing your spouse. That's how serious we should take our marriage. And I'm telling you, that's how serious we should take our marriage to this family. Not because Grace Fellowship is the only church, but because when we hop from one church to the other, we paint a bad picture. We paint a bad picture. Well, is there ever a time to leave? Yes. When the purity of the gospel is compromised... The church doesn't exist. The church refuses to function as the New Testament church is called to function. The church doesn't exist. You, I would say, are not leaving the church. The church left. And therefore, God has joined us together. And so let's strive eagerly to maintain the unity we have 
in one Spirit, one Lord, and one God and Father of us all. Let's work to maintain the unity we have by one baptism, one hope, one faith. Let's eagerly maintain it. Some of you are divided right now. You hold something, harbor something against your brother. We're about to take communion to end. This is our altar call. Come to Christ. Partake of His body and blood. But before you do that, you may need to go across this aisle physically, sit down with someone and say, I've been separated from you. I've let pettiness separate us. I've let real hurt separate us. I don't want it. I want to be right with you. I want to be in unity with you. I want to display the love of Christ to us through our relationship to the world. You may need to take care of that. And some of you may need to take care of your relationship with the Lord. Maybe you're at odds now with Him or have been. Come back to Him. Repent anew of your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Come back to Him. Who should take the supper? All believers should take the supper. All believers should come to communion. We should come both reflecting over our union with Christ and one another and His death on the cross to purchase that and we should come celebrating the fact that He will return, that He has not left us and He will not forsake us. So it is reflective and it is celebratory. It is both somber and serious and it is happy and glad. Communion is both of these things. And so as you come, if you're God's people, come. Unless you're under the discipline of the church, come. If you're not in Christ, then we withhold the supper. Why? Because God withholds the supper. Why? Because He loves you. He would not have you profane His name. There's a more serious matter than taking this supper for you. And it is believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior. So if you're not a believer, don't come. How do we do it here? How do we partake of the supper? Well, we do it symbolically. Each individual rises, or each individual family rises and comes and takes the elements. Returns to your seat. Waits patiently, humbly, for all to come and take. And then in the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace, we take the supper to exemplify our communion with God and with one another. We take it in corporate, together. That's how we do it. There's a purpose why we do the things we do here. We want you to think about these realities. And so, with that said, I open the table. I open the table to all of God's children. <coughs> and I open a time where you might reflect over your life, your faith, and your unity among one another. So let's pray, and as God leads, you come and take from the table.